Dear Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your word. Uh, You have not left us without uh, a way to know things about you and know how you act on this earth and know the things that you've done. But you've given us your word that we might know these things. So help us as we look at this chapter in the Bible. Send your Holy Spirit that our eyes might be open. Prepare our hearts that we might hear and receive uh, what you have said. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we will all die. All of us. I mean, there is the, the exception that Jesus comes again, which we hope and pray for, but save that, death is the ultimate fate of everyone. I was reading a, a book recently. It's about the the quarter-life crisis, which apparently is a thing that 20-somethings and early 30s go through. Uh, and one of the things that I, I hear people um, of that age, which is my age, say, is uh, they see a grey hair or they reach a birthday and they say, I'm so old. And this apparently is one of the things that people going through a quarter-life crisis have to deal with. Uh, odd, I know. But uh, the author of this book, uh, the advice that she gives is when you see that, grey hair, or when you see that wrinkle, or when you reach that birthday, remember, you're not getting older, you're dying. It's the ultimate fate of all of us. In uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, at the end of his journey, has to cross the river, doesn't he? It's the final test of our faith. It's perhaps the hardest test. I wonder how you view death. Are you uh, confident? Are you scared? What will your hope be in that moment? Well, what I hope we'll see as we look at this passage in Daniel is uh, how we can approach death with confidence, how we can approach death without fear. And we'll do that sort of, we'll come at it in three, three ways. First, I'll, I'll walk you through the story of Daniel and point out a few things. And then we'll see how this story of Daniel, this thing that happened to Daniel, is a foreshadowing of Christ. And then we'll apply that to ourselves. So first of all, let's look at Daniel. So Daniel is, uh, as seems to be the case, uh, he's making his way up the corporate ladder in Babylon. The, the king, has, the new king's come in and he's reorganized his organization, uh, done a restructure, and he's appointed 120 people to rule and three people on top of them. So there's sort of the king and then three people, one of whom is Daniel, and then 120 other managers throughout the kingdom. And Daniel is such a good manager that the king thinks he might make him the top dog, the CEO, if you like, or the general manager, and then there'll be two underneath him and 120 underneath them. He'll be second in charge in the kingdom. But Daniel encounters uh, some jealous colleagues. There's 122 people who think that he's not the best guy for that job. And we see there them trying to 
finds some charge against Daniel, some reason to give the king why he shouldn't give Daniel the, 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 top dog, the top job in the kingdom. And they discover that they can't find anything. Daniel's a, a good man. He, he serves his country and, and his king diligently. But they realize that there is one area where they might be able to trip him up. In verse 5, they say, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. They recognize that that Daniel has a hierarchy in his life. God comes first and then the king. So they plan, they plot and plan to get the king to create a law that contradicts God's law. And that way they'll catch Daniel out. And so in verses 6 to 9, we see that they come to the king and butter him up a bit and get him to agree to sign a, a law that says that you can't pray to anyone other than the king for 30 days. And there's various reasons that the king might have agreed to that, but what's important is that he does. He does agree to it, and um, he puts it in writing. And what's interesting Notice at the end of verse 8, when the king signs the decree, it cannot be altered. It cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And that phrase, that concept is repeated four times throughout the chapter. This law that's being put in cannot be changed. Can't be done. And um, even in this this great uh, kingdom where the king had sort of ultimate authority, even it seems the law has a higher authority than the king and he cannot change it. It cannot be repealed, cannot be altered. So what will Daniel do is what we're left thinking. He's now aware in verse 10, he learned that the decree had been published. What's he going to do? Will he follow his king or will he follow his God? And it seems that Daniel didn't have to think too hard because it doesn't even uh, finish the sentence. He went straight home to his room and he prayed as had been his custom, as he had always done. And, you know, he, he really did need to think about this a little bit because there was, a, there was quite a threatened place. If he ignored the king and went against this law, there was a punishment associated with it. And the punishment was being thrown into a lion's den, which uh, it seems is a fairly common thing that, because it, it doesn't, it's just something they naturally say. Uh, it must have been a common punishment, much like going to jail or perhaps in the past a hanging or a, or a electric chair. This was a method of, of execution and so you'd be thrown into the lion's den. That, and you can imagine, that's not, a, it's not that pretty a way of dying. It's, uh, there's hungry lions and they'll tear you limb from limb. You might not be quick. They might decide your arm tastes pretty good and eat that for a little while before coming at the rest of you. It's a, it's a big threat. And so Daniel had to decide. But... And you, and you can consider it too. Sorry. 
It's, so it is amazing, really, when Daniel goes straight home and follows his God unwaveringly. And we've, we've seen all throughout the first part of Daniel how this is not an uncommon thing. It wasn't like Daniel didn't pray all that often, and then as soon as this law came in, Daniel decided that he would pray to make a point about how good a, a Christian he is. Um, no, it's, it's a way of life that he's had ever since he came to Babylon. He uh, ensured that he was reminding himself of who he was and who his God was and seeking to live a holy life before his God, putting God first in everything. And so this is a natural progression from that sort of life, that way of life. He goes straight home and prays. And notice what he prays for. In verse 10, at the end, he gives thanks to God. So this law has come in from his king that you're not allowed to pray and if you do, you're going to die. And he gives thanks to God, just as he had always done. And then in verse 11, the men find him praying and asking God for help. And uh, I wonder, I wonder what his prayers would have looked like as he went home. We know from Daniel chapter nine, you can go and read it a bit later, that he knew his Bible well, and he knew God's promises. And so perhaps uh, we read Psalm twenty-two earlier on. Perhaps he knew this passage. Perhaps he prayed this passage, where the psalmist writes, "Deliver my soul from the sword." My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Perhaps he knew that there was this promise, this odd sort of promise in the the Psalms. Perhaps he was praying that. And maybe he didn't expect a physical deliverance. Maybe he did. But he certainly knew that God could save him. And he would have been asking God, for help to continue to serve him, to continue, uh, even if that meant death. And then we see the the men come in and they they capture Daniel and they bring him before the king and they call for justice. In verses 12 and 13, they bring him in before the king and they make sure the king remembers that he can't change that decree. Uh, And then they say, well, this Daniel here, he has gone against your law. We demand justice. We demand that you throw him to the lions. And the king, he's not very happy about this. He realizes he's been tricked. He clearly didn't think too hard before signing this, this law. And in verse 14, we see that when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed and was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort to save him. But... There was no way. He couldn't change the law. He'd already made it, and the, uh, the law of the land was that it must stand. He could not save Daniel any other way. He had to go through with this law. And so Daniel is cast into the lion's den. And this is, if you think about it, in, in verse 1 we're seeing Daniel rise to the top He's in a position of glory, a position of power, a position of splendor. Everyone in the land knows his name. And now all of a sudden, just 
15 verses later, he's now in a position of shame, being led to the, to the den of lions where he'll face his death. And this, this Daniel, at this point, he's about 80 years old. He served the kingdom well for 80 years. He's held positions of power for 80 years in the government. And now he's uh, being shamefully led before the, the nation into the lion's den. I wonder, did he have his head held high? Was there uncertainty in his mind? Were there doubts? Was he wondering how, how could God allow this to happen? Or was he confident in the salvation that God had promised in other parts of the Bible? It's quite a dip, isn't it? And so he's thrown in, and the, the king sort of hopefully says to him, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Maybe the king had heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe he knew the stories. Who knows? And so there might have been some glimmer of hope. But in verse 19 through to 23, we see the, uh, the triumph that Daniel's delivered from the lion's den. The king hurries after a sleepless night to open up the den and, and see if Daniel's all right. He says, Daniel, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel very humbly answers, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you. Isn't this amazing? Daniel, in shame, is led into the lion's den, and as he hits the bottom, the lions don't attack him. No, there's an angel there. And the, the angel who meets him often in, in the Old Testament, I think definitely in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's case, and I think probably here as well, this is a uh, pre-incarnated um, appearance of the Lord Jesus. And so as Daniel is shamefully led into the lion's den, Jesus is there with him, shutting the mouths of the lions, keeping him safe. How amazing. And it's not like uh, the lions almost got him and, and he got a few, you know, his arm got gnarled a bit, but he managed to fight them off and with the help of the angel. No, there's not a scratch on him. The picture in the kid's Bible of the lions sleeping on him Maybe he slept on the lions to save him being crushed. And you can imagine their furry coat might have made a nice pillow as he chatted with the Lord Jesus. What an amazing deliverance. Imagine that. And, and imagine the glory as he is lifted out before everyone from shame, thrown in, and the next morning, this, what? This Daniel? He's all right? How amazing. What an amazing guy. We, we've I mean, we've heard of it once before, but never, never other than that. And there's been hundreds of executions. Imagine the glory that Daniel is, is raised in, in that sense. And the reason, the reason that he came out without harm is found in verse 23 at the end of the verse. No wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. He went into the den 
trusting that God was able to save him. And this trust was expressed in his life, in the way that he lived. He, we, we see that he, he was trusting God because he went back immediately to his house after he heard of the decree and he prayed and he asked God for help and he thanked God. That's a position of trust. We also see it in, in how he lived. He was found righteous. He was found innocent because he was trusting God and living before him in trust. He had a blameless life that was, that was uh, founded in his trust of God. And you see the result of all of this. In verse 25 to 28, King Darius, as it seems often occurs in Daniel, the king sends out a decree to his whole nation and tells them that they must worship the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. What an amazing account of deliverance. And uh, what I want you to notice, what I want us to think about for a little bit now, is how this is a foreshadowing of what Christ went through. Uh, at times we can read Old Testament stories and, and think that we should be like Daniel in the story, and, and there's some truth to that. But often the case is that we should see Christ in Daniel and Christ in David and Christ in all these stories. And so let us look at that. Um, and to do that, let's, let's just flick over to Mark chapter 14. It's on page 1007. Actually, 1008, because we'll look at verse 36. So this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is led to the cross. He's lived a, a perfect life and is now coming to the point where he has to die. And he's praying in the garden with his disciples. And from verse 35, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see here, we see also a law that cannot be changed. We see that the Father's will for Jesus was for him to go through the cross and to save his people. And it wasn't a pleasant thing, but it was a law, it was a, a decision, it was a covenant, if you like, between the Father and the Son from eternity past that would not be changed. And much as the Lord Jesus did not want, in one sense, to go through it, in his earthly, in his human nature. It was a law that would not be changed. And he would go on. And, and the reason that this law could not be changed is that there was no other way. There was no other way for the Father to save sinners. There is judgment on us because of law, the law that we have broken, and that law cannot be changed. 
If there was any other way, wouldn't the Father have done it? But as Danny has said a few times, no, the, the Father would not spare his son. And, and consider the threat. Consider the, the punishment that's before him. He says, take this cup from me. And the cup he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's judgment that Jesus knew he would have to drink, not just a sip, but down to the last dregs. And and we know that uh, that Jesus, at this time, he, he didn't just pray one verse. He was praying for a good hour and more. And he was probably thinking of Psalm 22 as well, remembering that, that the Lord would, has promised salvation, but also that the Lord had promised to forsake him. In the, in the first verse of Psalm 22, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And the psalmist progresses through, so there's this there's this knowledge that God would forsake him, but there's this salvation in it as well. And consider how, unlike Daniel, Jesus was not spared from the lions. No, he suffered the full terror of the, of the lion's den. God's wrath was poured out on him in full. This one who was in the very bosom of the Father had the Father turn his face from him. This one who was light itself, who, who dwelt eternally in light, faced darkness. Consider the shame of it. The humility of, of Jesus, how he, who angels praised, came and was mocked and beaten. You see, Daniel wasn't harmed, but Jesus was completely harmed. But just like Daniel, Jesus was ultimately delivered because he was a righteous servant. The punishment was dealt out in full and was satisfied. If you think about Daniel, the law was that he must be cast into the lion's den. And he was. The law was actually satisfied in Daniel's punishment. It just didn't turn out the way they thought. And just like that, what we see in Jesus is that the law is satisfied. And so we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, speaking about Jesus coming, I'll read it for you, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, after Jesus went through this this horror and drank this cup of wrath, 
God raised him from the dead and declared him to be righteous, declared him to be his son, placed him in a position of great authority and power, gave him all glory and honour through the resurrection. That was the great proof. He raised him from the dead. He was happy with, with him, with his righteous servant. And this, this passing through the lion's den of Christ has the same result as Daniel. The end result is that there is much praise and glory to God. I mean, read the letters that, that Paul writes and consider how many times Paul says, I thank God, praise be to God, blessed be our God, always because he has sent his son to go through the lion's den to drink the cup of wrath and declared him to be righteous through the resurrection from the dead. So I hope you can see how Daniel is a great foreshadowing of Christ. And we can, we can see the great salvation that God has brought us through this story in Daniel. And for us, as we consider our own death, we can see the great hope that we have. The great hope of resurrection to eternal life. You see, there is a law that cannot be changed. It is God's law, and we have all broken it. And there is a punishment. There is a lion's den. And it cannot be changed. We, the, the, the punishment due to us must be satisfied. The threat is not a one-off lion's den. The threat is eternal judgment. The threat is hell. The threat is darkness. The threat is fire that will not be quenched. But if we trust in God, like Daniel, as we enter into the, the mouth of that lion's den of, of death and judgment, we will find that the lion's mouths have not been shut in a sense. Actually, in a sense, the lion's are just full. They have consumed the flesh of our Lord Jesus and have no hunger left for us. You see, he has shut the lion's mouths, the lions of God's wrath, by feeding them to the full, satisfying the wrath of God. There is nothing left in the cup for us to drink. And so we can look at the lion's den square in the face. We can approach death square in the face. We can read Psalm 22, all of it, and apply it all to ourselves. We will not be consumed. We will not be destroyed. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 that we read earlier. Have a look at how Paul describes what we're talking about. In verse 20 and 22, he 
He's talking about the great hope that we have because of the resurrection of Christ. And he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, in Adam we all deserve death, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. You see, in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you trust in him, if you are united with him in, by faith, though you deserve death because you are a son of Adam, in Christ you have been given life. In Christ, because he is raised, we have certainty that we will be raised. And consider too, and this is, this is beautiful, consider too that as we go to our death, it looks shameful. It looks like our God is not able to save us. It looks like we have lost. And oftentimes in in the history of Christianity, it looks like that even more plainly than the average death. Consider the martyrs. Consider those who die in, in poverty and in, out, perhaps out on the mission field by, by some sickness. They've gone to serve God and it seems like they've failed and God has failed them. There can be such shame in dying. But Consider the glory that will come of it. Over in verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking about the splendor that will come. He says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. But it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. But it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And he's using this, this concept, actually back in verse 37, if you, if you just scan your eyes back, he, he explains the concept that he's using. He says, when you sow, when you plant a seed... Do not plant, you do not plant the body that will be. Just a seed. Perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And it's this picture that he's showing us of death. You see, our bodies as they are, failing and weak. And the death that, that we'll go through, though it looks like this seed is rotting away, what will come out of it? It's a plant that bears fruit and flowers. It doesn't look anything like the seed, although it's got similarities and it's got a link to it, but it's so much more glorious. It goes to the grave in shame and, and weakness, but it's raised and it's, and it's powerful and it's beautiful and it's fruitful and strong. This is what the resurrection will be like. 
It'll be like a seed planted in a plant bursting through the soil, bursting into life. C.S. Lewis talks about how how heaven is, is the real reality. When we are raised, it will be It'll be like everything should be. He talks about in the, in the great divorce this, how there's this similarity to what we have now, but it's so much more clear, so much more bright, so much more joyous, so much louder, so much bigger. When you think of the last battle in, in Narnia and it's further in, higher up, it might even start as a small seedling, but it, it's going to grow bigger. And even as Danny said, after a thousand years, we will have just scratched the surface of the glory that we'll have. Further in, higher up. And all this because the lions have had their mouths closed. All this because one has gone through the den before us. Look at our great hope. Our God is the one who delivers through death. We have no need to fear. We can look in the mirror, see those grey hairs. We can get to our birthday and go, I'm not ageing. I'm just getting closer to bursting into bloom. Let us be filled with confidence and praise to our great God who has saved us from the terror of the lion's den, the terror of death, the terror of his righteous judgment. Praise the one who will raise us in glory. Let us pray. Dear Lord, how marvelous are your works. Though we aren't deserving of the least of them, but you have purposed, you have chosen to bestow great things on your people. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you went through the lion's den of God's wrath and death, and you have shut the lion's mouths. Lord, we pray that as we consider our death, and and Lord, I pray that as we uh, set our minds for that day when we will have to cross the river, Lord, I pray that these these truths would be fresh to us, that these truths would be brought to our mind. Lord, I pray that we would live for that day, that we would be able to say with Paul that to die is gain. And so help us, Lord, to live for Christ, to live not for the things of this world that are passing away, but to live for the things of eternity, to live for your glory, to live for your good pleasure, to serve you, to, to trust you, to want to know you more, to want to praise you and love you more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.